Hello, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're here on Wednesday again this week, a little after 9 a.m. on September 20th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. We're joined today by Joanne Kennan of Politico. Good morning, Julie. And Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Hello, guys. So I'm calling this the zombie edition because as many times as we've said around this table that the Republican-only repeal and replace effort is dead this year, it's not. Again. And that long shot bill we've talked about the past couple of weeks, sponsored by Lindsey Graham of South Carolina and Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, not only refuses to die, it looks at least possible to live and become law. But it still won't be easy. There are lots of hurdles still in the way of this. Most important, the protections that let the Senate pass this with the simple majority end September 30th, which is next Saturday. But first, remind us, Margot, what this bill would actually do. I think. This bill is going to have the most uncertain effects of any of the Republican bills that have come out so far. And so I think about its effects in a couple of different buckets. One is stuff that we sort of already know about because we've examined it in previous efforts. Uh, The bill would change the structure of the Medicaid program, changing it from an open-ended system in which the federal government pays a percentage of people's medical bills to one where states are going to get a capped allotment per person in the program. This is a program that serves... Uh, a lot of children, people in nursing homes, Americans with disabilities. 70 million people. 70 million people. Some of those people are in the Medicaid expansion and they're in the next category. But a lot of those people were um, part of the Medicaid program prior to Obamacare. It was a very you know, 52-year-old program that would be permanently changed. So that is similar to previous bills. Um, the bill would set up a sort of transition period uh, for two years where the individual and employer mandates in Obamacare would go away. And, you know, we sort of know from previous analyses, CBO thinks that is just a messy scenario that's going to lead to uh, pretty sharp increases in insurance premiums, probably some places where there are no insurance options available to people, um, and a substantial increase in the number of uninsured Americans in the neighborhood of 15 million more uninsured Americans. That's the short term. Then we get to the long term piece, which is the unique part of this bill. What this bill does is it sort of takes approximately the money that it thinks would go towards Obamacare subsidies and the Medicaid expansion, and it puts that into a giant pot. It reallocates it into chunks to the different states, and then the states get the money, and they have almost no strings attached. They have to come up with a plan for how they're going to do it. It has to be healthcare related, and they can sort of each come up with their own plan, uh, collect their pile of money, and use it as they see fit. Uh, there are a lot of unknowns in this because we really don't know Uh, what states would choose to do and what they really have the capacity to set up in two years. Uh, There's all kinds of operational challenges there, I think. But there's also uh, this big formula change that happens because the money is put into a giant pile and then parceled out to the different states. And so what is not based on what they're getting now. It is not based on what they're getting now. It's based on a combination of factors, including how many people near the poverty line live in each state 
and eventually how many people have insurance coverage under the new system. And what it is intending to do and what Senator Cassidy has described it as intending to do is to sort of equalize spending across the states. Some states spend a ton of money. Some states spend less. And it's trying to, like, equalize that spending per person, which I think in theory sounds like a really rational way to do things, especially when you're focusing that money on the number of poor people in a state. But I think there are a lot of ways in which it's an artificial formula. One important one is that the cost of medical care does vary quite a bit in different parts of the country. And, you know, not just because some places have more generous benefits than others, but also because the cost of living is higher in some places than others. You know, you would expect that medical care costs more in New York than it does in Mississippi. And in fact, the Medicare program, which pays, you know, relatively fixed prices for medical services, does pay doctors in New York City more than it pays doctors in rural Mississippi. This bill doesn't really take account of that. And also what it's doing is it's creating an artificial constraint by capping the total amount of money that we spend on the healthcare system. And then it's saying, well, if this is the total amount that we can spend, then we should probably give more of it to states that have more poor people. And I think that's a rational way once you're within the universe of that constraint. But of course, the states that get more money under this formula than under current law are almost all states that declined to expand Medicaid under Obamacare. And so it's important to realize that there's nothing under current law that prevents them from getting more federal funding to provide health insurance benefits to their residents than they have now. They've just chosen to forego that money because they either don't like Medicaid or they don't like Obamacare or they're concerned about a small percentage of matching that they would have to contribute over the long term. And Joanne, before we... Look at the map, though. Yeah. I mean, it is uh, money shifts to poorer southern, more rural states, which are also red states. Um, You could look at, you know, John Kasich, the governor of Ohio, who has broken with his party on a lot of health care issues, is, you know, very much a defender of Medicaid. I mean, if he looks at what happens to his state and he looks at how much Texas gets, he probably just feels like this bill would actually make Ohio sit down and write a great big check to Texas. And it would. But, but before <laughs> we get to the politics, though, I want to stay on, on the substance for one more minute. I guess there's one oh, more really okay. important thing. Yes, that, okay. that I, I think this is so important. It's not, this is not talked about yes, enough. That's okay. what I was going to Well, ask. I actually have a different one, which is all of this money that we're talking about, and we are talking about the distribution between states, it goes away in 2027. So what this is, this bill is almost like a slow motion repeal of Obamacare. It says... For this period of time, through 2026, states are going to get this money. Do with it what you wish within some constraints. And then in 2027, it says, goodbye, Obamacare money. And in that way, it is actually not dissimilar from the sort of total repeal bill that was passed, uh, that was attempted to be passed through the Senate a couple of months ago that Rand Paul and others wanted that just basically took all of the Obamacare money away. This takes all of the Obamacare money away, just not until 2027. And then there's one, I think one thing that we also have to touch on, though, that you were just saying, in giving the states all of this flexibility to do whatever they want with the money, it would basically eviscerate a lot of the protections that even the Republicans have been saying all year that they want, right? The two issues that have derailed earlier, derailed and or slowed down in the House and complicated the effort in on the Hill to, to, to repeal, one is, the med, is Medicaid, which is what Marco just talked about. Medicaid is not part of Obamacare. Traditional Medicaid goes back to 1965. The repealing Obamacare is one thing. Fundamentally changing how we pay for Medicaid is another. And a lot of people, uh, you know, Margo described the populations at 70 million vulnerable people, poor people, kids, old people, and everybody in between disabled. That created a lot of bad will 
um, that is in this bill. And that was the political touchstone. And the other political touchstone, the Medicaid was particularly an issue in the Senate, and the other political touchstone was pre-existing conditions, as Julie just referred to. This bill still says, you know, insurers have to offer insurance, but it doesn't – it gives the states – huge leeway to define what is insurance, what benefits are included. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't say it has to be, I mean, it doesn't define affordable. So an insurer could say, oh, yeah, you have, you know, 43 diseases and, you know, you're, you're the most expensive, you're, you're the million dollar patient like that person in Iowa. Well, you know, we'll, we'll give you insurance under the law we have to, but it could cost, you know, it's, it's completely unattainable. It could so, cost a huge amount of money under this, under this bill, but also it might not include the care that you right. need for your particular disease. So it's both things. It's both that there are, it would allow states to eliminate benefit requirements. And so, for example, an insurance company might say, I don't want to cover expensive chemotherapy. Uh, if you have cancer, that's a problem for you. Or they could say, I'll cover chemotherapy, but the small print is going to say, it turns out it covers four days worth and not two years worth or whatever. I mean, it's just, there's no guarantee. What we call essential health benefits, the states can, that won't exist in the form we know today. So uh, as we've saw this, you know, everybody, all of us thought this bill was dead. I didn't think efforts to undermine the Affordable Care Act were dead. I thought they would come, I don't think that was, I didn't think it was going to go away. I didn't think it would come in this form. And it, this, this may also fail when we go back to other scenarios including other ways of defunding regulatory attacks, things that HHS is doing and we expect them to do. Um, I expected it to shift. But when, you know, the, the advocacy community also thought this was pretty much, done, you know, gone. Um, um, well, they said, the senator said this yeah, is pretty much gone. Yeah, McConnell said it's yeah. over. Um, as Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader, had said, I'm not doing a goat rodeo. Um, <laughs> which, but, but. But I, I think, we really I think saw that we had examined groups. that metaphor in more depth last week, we would have realized <laughs> that the goat rodeo is maybe more desirable than you would have thought. We're still not sure this goes <laughs> to the floor. And people may be listening to this as things change over the next few days. We don't know what happens when they all come back next week. But what we did see for the first day was like the surge of momentum and everybody running around saying, oh, this thing's going to pass. And what we saw yesterday is the advocacy community and a bipartisan group of governors that had been active in criticizing and slowing down repeal over the last eight months, they mobilized very, very quickly. So you have two forces now, and we don't know. You know, you have this, the Cassie Dud, the Cassie Graham bill does have more momentum than it had. I mean, it had none, and now it does have a lot. At the same time, you have the advocates beginning to talk about the issues we were talking about, Medicaid pre-ex. Um, we had Jimmy Kimmel last and night. Jimmy Kimmel, Take right? on, well, and, you know, don't underestimate that. No. A lot of people watch Jimmy Kimmel who don't watch C-SPAN or, forgive me, listen to our podcast. Um, and, you know, Jimmy Kimmel just basically said that Senator Cassidy and, you know, in creating it, with Senator Cassidy who created the Jimmy Kimmel test that people like Jimmy Kimmel's, you know, uh, newborn baby who needed two heart surgeries should be able to get care. Um, and Jimmy Kimmel said basically that Cassidy lied to him. And Cassidy put out a statement that basically said, we have a deadline coming up. Right. Yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy Kimmel says something like, um, I didn't watch the entire thing last night. I just bookmarked it. I'll watch it later. But um, it says something I consider the Jimmy Kimmel test. He's, it's the lie detector test. I think that was his line. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, there's and, a and lot of ferment very the, quickly about this bill, and none of us know how it's going to turn he out. He put the sort of Capitol Hill switchboard on the screen. I know. So, you I, know, like a lot of people watch that show who maybe have not been calling their member of Congress. I don't know how influential Jimmy Kimmel is in I, mobilizing people politically, but my guess is that a lot of senators got phone calls. I think because he's really not primarily a political comedian the way some of the other light night people are. And he is sort of this, you know, more non-political. And his story was so much motivated, you know, him crying on television about his very sick child, his, his newborn with a heart condition, and understanding that not just the trauma of it 
experiencing that, but what it means to families that don't have the resources that Jimmy Kimmel's family had. I think it was really one of the most powerful movements in this whole year. So I, I think that um, people did watch and will hear about it. And, you know, we do live in the age where you can do what I did, which is I'll watch it later. Yeah, it's all it's all over social media. Yeah. So, so here's my question. You know, we've been we've been down this road how many times, and we know pretty much who the 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 few votes are that we're looking at. It's Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, John McCain, um, and of course now we have Rand Paul of of Kentucky who said that he's a no, and he goes he seems to go on Twitter about every three hours and repeating, "I'm still a no." Um, you know, and basically those those are one presumes they would need two of those four to get this to 50 votes. They couldn't do it before on, you know, on things that were far less um, objectionable to these people, to these four people than this is. And yet there seems to be this sort of concern. I mean, how powerful is this deadline that you could see any two of those members who have, you know, expressed all kinds of doubts all year flip? I think there are a couple of things. Um one is that the deadline is real. It's, the, it's September 30th. Two, there are some people who think that Bernie Sanders um, introducing the single-payer bill actually motivated this you know, counter-reaction that the conservatives sort of said, ah, you know, and it made them more unified and, and determined to try another attempt. I think the other thing is you know, this bizarre – Last week, the last two weeks we've seen President Trump and his two new best friends, Chuck and Nancy. So I think the Republicans – Trump had been dumping on the congressional Republicans for failing to repeal Obamacare, which, as we all know, is a defining issue that they were not able to define, um, you know, to, to th- that they felt – the Republicans really felt, we need a win. We need, And that's part of the appeal they're making to John McCain. You know, this is something that the Republicans need and you are a Republican um, and to all the undecideds. The, the, so, so just sort of like they've been here eight months – the fiscal year is ending. They really didn't do very much this year. They're not getting, you know, there's these weird tensions between the White House and Congress. Um, you know, there's sort of this, we just need to show that we actually can govern and we can do this rather than that they're suddenly in love with this bill because they're not. And what we do not know, we know the four who are openly undecided or opposed. We don't know who else is sort of lurking there, not coming out, but really hoping this goes away. Well, last time it was Ron Johnson of Wisconsin who, you know, suddenly didn't didn't had no idea whether he could vote for this. And then now he's a co-sponsor of this thing, as is Dean Heller, who was one of the people who said, I will not vote for something that hurts my state if my governor's against it. Well, it hurts his state and his governor's against it, but he's a co-sponsor. His Republican governor is, is vehemently against it. Yes. Yeah. I think it's so it's very hard to predict because if, if you look at Susan Collins, I think she's been relatively consistent throughout this whole process about what her concerns are. And I think she's actually been the most clear of any of these people that this bill, I think she said, has some problems that the other ones didn't have. So, you know, I think Susan, it was a nice way of putting it. I think it. Susan Collins is not a gettable vote. And I think Lisa Murkowski has been more vague about what she cares about. She seems to care about Alaska. She seems to care about Planned Parenthood. She seems to care about Medicaid. But like maybe there's some wiggle. And so her governor's against it, too. And, you know, one of the challenges with this bill is that we don't exactly know which states are better and worse off. There are various estimates, but the formula is actually so complicated. And because of the way the CBO works, we actually don't have a great baseline for comparing what will happen in individual states to current law. But it looks like probably this is bad for Alaska. So let's put Lisa Murkowski over to the side. Rand Paul, it's actually really puzzling to me. He has made every he's taken advantage of every opportunity to scream out loud that he does not want to vote for this bill, that it's Obamacare light. He called it amnesty for Obamacare yesterday. 
But and and to be clear, Rand Paul doesn't like it because for at least for the, the for the first several years, it keeps most of the taxes that raised the money for okay. Obamacare because that's the money that they're giving the states. Sure, but then I went and looked at how Rand Paul voted on the previous bills, and I just will remind everyone that Rand Paul voted for the so-called skinny repeal bill, which also would have kept all the Obamacare taxes and also would have kept all of, more of the Obamacare funding in uh, in the future. So ideologically, I don't understand why this one is Obamacare light is 90 percent of Obamacare is Obamacare amnesty and sort of skinny repeal, which actually had a lot of the same features, was OK. But I, I just feel like at some point you have to take him at his word. He's been screaming and yelling so much that he doesn't like this, that I think it would be quite difficult for him to reverse his position. Unless there's some kind of ideological victory. It's not going to be a cash thing. It's not going to be funding more opioids for Kentucky or something like that. But there could be some kind of language that you know affirms that this really will expire and go away and it's not as fast as he'd like. I mean, I'm seeing him as a no right now, but there's, you know... By Monday, things can change. Yeah, there's a rewriting going on. And I, I mean, I this would... is not this. This bill is not a fixed piece yet. But we should also note, and I think there's some other things we want to talk about today too. But I think we should also note the process. We do not yes. have a CBO. That's score. my next question. Yeah. So well, talk we talk about the procedure. We talk about John McCain because I think okay. th- th- it's actually related. So John McCain is the last one that's hanging out there that we don't really know about who's a possible no vote. And I think his objections throughout this process have been objections having to do with procedure and not with policy that he feels like better legislation is written through a bipartisan process, through regular order with committee hearings and CBO scores and all of the kind of normal check boxes of the legislative process. Uh, This bill does not check those boxes. But he doesn't seem to have, as far as I can tell, really deep kind of philosophical or ideological objections to the substance of this bill, or at least he has not discussed those. And he is also someone where I went back and looked at how he voted, and he did not vote against every previous version of this. He voted... Uh, for opening debate. He voted uh, for one of the uh, more comprehensive bills. And then he voted against the final try, which was the skinny repeal bill, which was, I think, procedurally the most ridiculous because it sort of it popped up at 10 p.m. and they voted on it at 1 a.m. But none of the things that he voted for had the process that he is now calling for. And I don't actually see why this bill is worse on those grounds. Well, there were two things. One, he he says that as a matter of principle, he always votes for the motion to proceed on a Republican bill. So the first vote allowing it to go to the floor was quite consistent. And he gave that really scorching speech, not just about the process on this bill, but, you know, what the Senate looks like today versus his And then he perhaps, voted for it. <laughs> Right, but he, that that was a consistent vote. And the other one, I was quite surprised when he voted for the the, for the first repeal vote that he did cast the vote for. I wasn't expecting that after that, you know, scorching speech. But he also later said he, in order to amend it, if it had passed and moved forward, that he he in order to be able to offer some amendments that his governor wanted for the state of Arizona, he had to vote for it. So he he had a process. I mean, the, the clear message at the end was, you know. He took it down. I'm not sure after that clear message and after we were all paused and looking at that, if you get him. You know, people say, well, he's a loyal Republican. There's a lot of pressure on him. He's very, very close to Lindsey Graham as one of the co-sponsors. I also think that... And his governor supports this. Right. But he did the last one, too. There's other internal politics in Arizona that we won't digress. Um, But the... At the end of the day, pressuring John McCain doesn't always work. He's a pretty tough guy. Pressuring him might even back, you know, have the reverse effect. And if he was going to embrace this bill, you know, Lindsey Graham keeps saying, yeah, my pal's going to do it. You know, I can. why didn't he do it already? I mean, I, I think he's generally undecided. 
And I think he's wrestling with a lot of things. I also think that uh, on policy, I think he does have trouble with the Medicaid piece. There's a lot of elderly people in Arizona. There's a lot of kids in Arizona. It's an innovative Medicaid program. I think the state, which was a late starter on Medicaid, actually takes some pride in what they do with it now. I'm not sure he wants to dismantle it. And, and just for a minute before we want to move on a little bit, let's talk about the, the procedure because this, because actually the, the act, even if they get 50 votes, the act of getting this to the floor and getting it done in time for the end of next week is is pretty daunting still. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know. We, we are not going to have a full CBO score um, by the time the Senate votes. In other words, we will know a little bit about its budgetary impact in a preliminary report. We will not know what this bill does to the number of people who lost insurance. As we all recall, every other bill, it was in the millions, you know, 2022, 20, 24. Millions, yeah. Yeah. Um, millions of people lost in every other bill. We will not know what a typical uh, premium, how, how much insurance costs or what insurance is going to look like. We won't know. In other words, we won't see those headlines. CBO says 24 million. Um, so by not having it, um, not, not having CBO, the Republicans don't have to face those headlines. On the other hand, they do have to f- face those headlines as they're voting on a bill and we don't know what's in it, which is true. Can I make a wonky point about this? Sure. So CBO, I think, is really important in our political debate. And I think it's very valuable to members of Congress because they are nonpartisan. They're serious economists who are trying to get to the right answer. And I think they provide all of us with guidance about the effects of legislation that we feel we can rely on and report on in a way that, you know, things coming out of think tanks or that senators tell us we always tend to be suspicious about political motives. But CBO, in order to score this bill in the way that Joanne has described, would essentially have to guess what kind of health care system 50 states are going to build from scratch and what the effects of that would be. And CBO does these kinds of things all the time. They do make these kinds of policy assumptions. But this does strike me as the kind of situation in which whatever answer CBO ultimately gets to is going to be the best guess of some smart people who are trying to get to the right answer. But it is not going to be a kind of accurate description of the future. And so I think in all, you know, there's some judgment involved in all of the scoring that they've done on health care. But I think on this one in particular, I, I, I do kind of feel like who knows how many people are going to have or right, lose but that's been true. Of, I mean, that was true of the House bill, too, which has a lot of state flexibility options. And CB, CB, yes. CBO scores it and they say, here's a range of things that could happen. It could go here. It could go here. And here's the middle of what right. this range is. Yeah. I mean, those, like, those, were, those were kind of tweaks within the system, right? It's saying, you know, you could waive the right. following rules. Here's a range of things the states might do. This is like the, the, the range of things that states could do is so wide open under this bill that and it really could be 50 different things. Right. But we have a few things. We've got the CBO and it's, you know, it's not it is it is the best, you know, the, the, the neutral scorekeeper. We have a zero. We have no information from them that politically has impact. It has impact on individual dis- senators. I mean, McCain might just say, without the CBO, I can't go there. I mean, it, it, it plays. I'm not questioning how much uncertainty this bill creates. But sure, we don't. And we haven't gone through. Uh, I, we None of us are sure exactly how far along they've gone through this process. So it's called the bird bath, which is screening the bill to make sure it stays under. It's with the Senate parliamentarian. There's something called the bird rule. It has to stay in certain very strict and arcane um, budgetary rules to get to the floor. So um, there's probably some it changes. Can get to the floor, it would just need right, 60 right, votes. Right. Um, there's probably some changes going on as we speak that have to do with um, the bird rule. And and 
the other thing, you know, let's say it gets through the Senate, it then has to go back to the House, not by September 30th. But there's a, a dynamic there. I think it probably would. I think it would probably get through the House with not necessarily the same 217 people voting for it. I think it would probably get through the House. But there, there's lots of wheels can fall off something this big. And wheels fall off and congressional staff, you know, take out their toolkit and they put the wheels back on. There's not a lot of time here. So if you have 50 senators, 52 Republican senators and one of them says, oh, I didn't realize this sentence here. I, explain that to me. I don't think that's so good for my state. You have to sort of calm people down and find a way of fixing it or finding something else that makes up for it. They don't have a lot of time to patch up those concerns. And they have a week. And it's worth mentioning that if the House were to pass this after September 30th... Can't uh, come back to the Senate. It can't come back. They have to pass the exact same thing. Not and there have already Senate. been identified some like little drafting errors in this bill, which, you know, has been written somewhat hastily and hasn't undergone um, a lot of the kind of scrutiny. (laughs) Well, we were there with the Affordable Care Act, which actually like did go through this whole process. And there still were like a lot of little glitches. But Charles Gaba, who is a a blogger and a sort of really faithful recorder of ACA enrollment, uh, was looking at the fine print. And he found, for example, that the bill would bar uh, federal subsidies from going to health insurance plans that cover abortions starting next year. So uh, the contracts are just about to be signed for those plans. There are many of them where the states actually require abortion services to be covered. It would sort of be too late to change those plans, probably. And so you would end up with like also, a whole bunch of states that uh, <laughs> yeah. would have um, no insurance plans. The other thing that we didn't mention, and it's really relevant for both Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, is this bill does defund Planned Parenthood for one year, and they don't like that. All right. We could go on, but we're not going to because because this has taken all of the oxygen out of what was supposed to be going on in healthcare for the last couple of weeks of September. And that is the, the bipartisan effort to, to stabilize the uh, the individual insurance market. It's and for now. For now. You, you are, it's, we'll an, it's, a, it's potential other zombie. Yeah. Well, I, no, I agree. I don't think it's I think I wrote on Twitter last night that I don't think it's dead, dead. I think it's dead until after September 30th, dead. But we should point out that so, that, so Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray at the Senate Health Committee had four hearings. They had, you know, so they were negotiating. Murray put out a statement yesterday morning that said they were close and, you know, things were going well. And apparently over at the at the leadership meeting at lunch, Alexander was told to pull the plug on it because they were afraid that that would draw votes away from the the, the right. Ryan in the White House base. Basically, yeah. on the record, saying, you know, we're not going there. But the other way of understanding the, the Lamar Alexander, um, Patty Murray bipartisan effort, which was, you know, we've talked about quite extraordinary, trying to do even a modest bipartisan fixed on Obamacare. We've just seen how hard that was. It was stopped. But I think you can look at the Cassidy Graham bill on two levels. One is, OK, we're going to try to get this last ditch long shot repeal bill through and get, you know, really solve this legislatively. The other thing is we are going to make this big <laughs> uh, push for Cassidy Graham, even if it doesn't pass, because we can at least stop Lamar Alexander that way by putting all this oomph and energy and, and you know, party loyalty and, and just it just take it's not just taking the oxygen in healthcare, It's just taking all the oxygen this week. You really killed anything bipartisan for now. Could they come back? They could come back. But right now, it's off. It's, you know, it is just not it's just not a live option in the next 12 days. And meanwhile, the CHIP program, the Children's Health Insurance Program, is languishing. It expires at the end of the month. Uh, along with it, some important funding for community health centers. These are things that are bipartisan. These are things that Republicans want um, and say they want. And yet, there's just it seems it was kind of fallen off the radar. I just don't think they feel a great deal of urgency on those things. They know they're going to have to pass a big 
giant omnibus bill at the end of the year that's going to fund the government that's going to deal with the debt limit and a million other things. And my guess is that CHIP and some of these other smaller healthcare items will be resolved then. But yeah, I mean, these things are not definitely not happening in September. There are three There are three agenda items. One is the cost-sharing subsidies, which just got paid again this week. And again, we're going to go through a drama next in October when they're doing what is the administration going to do when there's some legal issues. So we'll, we'll come back to that. Right now, the cost-sharing subsidies, which help low-income people pay for their out-of-pocket costs, they were paid for one more month. Their future is in jeopardy. Um, they, of course, that's what the bipartisan the bill bipartisan was supposed bill to would have done that. Them. And there right. are also ways you can address it through the appropriations process, but that's um, that's not happening right now. The second thing that's not happening now is the Children's and Health Insurance Program, which, as we talked about, is bipartisan. The Senate did cut. The Senate Finance Committee cut a deal on the CHIP part, not on the Community Health Center's part. That is not happening in the next few days. And also there's this thing called the Medicare Extenders, which is a uh, – I didn't realize it was $30 billion, but apparently it is $30 billion. Um, it is a series of tax measures, well, series of sort of somewhat technical provisions that have to do with everything from rural hospitals to ambulance service. And that's stuck. So well, that's, also money for low-income right. Medicare my, beneficiaries. My first week in Washington as a as a national health care reporter, my editor sent me to cover a hearing on the Medicare extenders. And I felt like it was some kind of hazing ritual because they are so like arcane and technical. I'm so old. I remember when some of them were first passed. It's not um, as bad as when you have to fill in for a colleague in the middle of a defense appropriation <laughs> <laughs> markup about ships. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that, can I, can I, I'm, I'm yes, sorry. I'm, what, I'm sorry, always cutting in. Um, ships, not ships, right? One thing that's interesting in thinking about the Alexander effort and the Graham-Cassidy bill side by side is that a big part of the negotiations between Alexander and Murray had to do with these state innovation waivers that already exist in Obamacare. And they essentially would let states set up alternative health care systems if they adhered to various guidelines. And there's a view that the guidelines are really tough and that the process is really burdensome and that very few states have tried to do anything ambitious under this system, but that if they could agree on some way of loosening up and making it easier, that maybe more states would innovate within the existing law. So the kind of backup plan would be you have Obamacare, but if you want to do something different, great, let's make it easier. And I feel like it isn't that different from what Cassidy and Graham say they're trying to do with their bill, which is to let states do something other than Obamacare. But the difference is that it's less money and the training wheels are kind of off. There's no backup plan for states if they don't come up with some new, innovative, wonderful thing. Yeah, even the states who want to more or less keep what they have now in two years, the it's techn- I mean, I talked to one of the state exchange directors yesterday. It's going to be really hard to do that. It is just a big... Remember, two years isn't a long... T- we had four years to get to roll out the ACA. Although some of that was for budget reasons. Some of it was for budget reasons, but we also know that the beginning of... We all remember what happened to healthcare.gov. Yes. So the idea of um, trying to create 50 separate state um, systems... In some states where the, they're politically divided, some states they're not. There are technical issues, there are financial issues, there are political issues, there's pragmatic issues. There's, you know, some consultants will turn out to do a great job and some consultants will not do so hot. Um, it would. There's a lot of room for things to go wrong. And in I don't. Years. I don't want to understand understate the other policy differences between these two efforts because there are. We talked about them. There are yeah, other ones. Huge Medicaid. But I think change. it really underlines how political this process is because I think you could imagine if what Republicans really wanted was for states to have more flexibility about what they did with with federal dollars in their health care systems, how they ran their health insurance markets and and Medicaid programs. 
you could imagine the leadership actually coalescing behind this Alexander effort and trying to figure out how could you really make this waiver program achieve those goals as part of a bipartisan deal or even as part of a partisan deal, but to say, let's make this change to Obamacare that's going to help us achieve this important Republican goal of state flexibility. But instead, it, it is instead all of that energy is being channeled into an effort that can be credibly called Obamacare repeal. But I, th- I think that some of those technical conversations are, in fact, quietly going on and will continue to go on. I think they're in the background, and I don't think they've been dropped. I and think. I think we'll talk about them later because yeah. we're running out of time. So we're going to wrap things up with the segment we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story that we read recently that we think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. Margo, what's your extra credit this week? Um, So I want to talk about something completely unrelated to Obamacare, which is a really wonderful story in Stat from Sharon Begley called Every Time It's a Battle. And this is a story about uh, patients who have sickle cell anemia, which is a disease uh, where the shape of your blood cells is abnormal. And so it can lead to kind of clogs uh, in your blood vessels that can be quite painful and that require treatment and that can cause organ damage over time. So this is a very serious chronic disease. Uh, largely experienced by African-Americans. And what she chronicled is that a lot of these people, they go to the emergency room when they're having these really acute problems, and they are treated really badly through a combination of a lack of training from a lot of general physicians and emergency room physicians and this new concern about the overprescription of opioid medications. And it just really made me think about... It is clear that physicians have been too ready to prescribe opioids to people who have pain and that that has fueled the opioid epidemic and caused lots of people to have addiction and other kinds of problems. But there are these kind of casualties along the side. And I thought this was a group of people that was really worth thinking about because these are people who you know, periodically have very serious pain. They kind of know what drugs they need. They just want to go to the emergency room and, and get treated. And in some ways, because they are seeking specific drugs, because they come frequently to the emergency room over the course of their lives, they are sort of have all of the red flags of someone who is a drug addict and who is trying to take advantage of the system. And, you know, as as the story reports, their their health is bad and they're in, and declining in some ways because they're just not able to get good care through the system. Well, actually, very briefly, it also reminds me of I met a physician recently from Detroit who I think at Children's Hospital who is actually working on uh, ways to detect the triggers and the pain before they get to that crisis. It's not a, I mean, the problem Margaret described where you treat a, someone with a terrible disease and you treat them as a drug addict or a drug, what they call drug-seeking behavior. I'm not minimizing that, but it would also be great if we had a healthcare system that enabled these things to be detected before the child or adult ends up in pain in the emergency room. All right. Uh, my, um, extra credit. my extra credit, we all read this and we all love this. It's a piece in HuffPost. It's a part of their series about just interesting live stories. It's written by um, one of the leading genetic researchers, Mary Claire King. Who Don't, don't spoil it, though. Just, just I will not. <laughs> it's called The Week My Husband Left and My House Was Burgled and I Secured a Grant to Begin the Project that Became BRCA1. And you, know, you need to read it. It's got genetics, crime, Family dogs, marital collapse, a really difficult mother, and a surprise mystery guest. Yeah, it's really good. Um, All right. Here's mine. Um, It is from Today's Politico. Uh, Headline is, Prices Private Jet Travel Breaks Precedent. Um, A a wonderful little sort of gotcha piece about uh, Health and Human Services Secretary Price, who it turns out is taking uh, 
private jets to some of his various appearances, including, you know, some as close as Philadelphia um, and paying, you know, $25,000 for some of these jets. And immediately all over Twitter this morning were all the, the people who worked in the last administration. We always flew commercial. So um, it's, it, is, it is well worth a read. Uh, and that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. That will help other people find us, too. If you have comments, you can email us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Sanger Katz. I'm at Joanne Kennan. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.